The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. As I said, repetition is a powerful tactic in teaching and learning. In the classroom, teachers use repetition in assignments to reinforce concepts. In athletics, coaches also use repetition in practice until skills become reflexes. In the home, parents use repetition to disciple their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Sometimes also just because they want stuff to get done and it's not getting done. And it should come then as no surprise that God uses repetition to teach us. We who are dull, forgetful, sometimes faithless, we need the patient, gracious, and repetitious instruction of the Lord. God knew this, even in his own self-revelation of his character. We see in Exodus 34, verses six and seven, when the Lord to Moses said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. As God reveals himself in that way to Moses, it is repeated all throughout the scriptures. It would be repeated in Numbers 14, just a few chapters a little bit later. The psalmists would pick it up in Psalm 86 and Psalm 103 and Psalm 145 as a way to say, this is our God. Nehemiah reminds those that are, uh, have returned to Jerusalem, that have returned to the land to rebuild the walls and the temple. He reminds them who their God is. The prophets Joel, Jonah, Nahum also return and quote, this is our God as he's warning them of judgment that comes from turning from the Lord. There are commands all throughout the scripture that are repeated. The one that we celebrate and refer to often, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love, what? Endures forever, is repeated across the pages of your scriptures as our worshipful response in every season of life. And so when we come to these concluding verses here in chapter eight of this first half of the gospel of Mark, it's no wonder then that he repeats some central truths for us. Up to this point, Mark has been very urgent, urgent to show us the man, Jesus Christ. And in verse 27 of this chapter, that's gonna change as he shows us the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ, And before really he makes that change, he wants to ensure, he wants to ensure that we are solid in our understanding that Jesus is Lord of all. That Jesus is Lord of all. So join me in your copy of God's word now. Join me in the Bible here as I read uh, for us Mark 8, 1 through 26. Follow along as I read it for us here. It says this, in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? 
And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is God's word for God's people. We'll stop there. In Mark so far, let me ask these questions. In Mark so far, have we seen Jesus feed a bunch of people? Yeah, you can respond. It's okay. Be lively. Yeah, have we seen Jesus feed a bunch of people? You bet we have. Have we also seen in Mark uh, the Pharisees confront Jesus about something? Yep, we've seen that too. In the book of Mark, have we seen Jesus question his disciples for their lack of understanding? Yep, we've done that too. Have we seen in the book of Mark someone miraculously healed when their friends brought him to Jesus? Yeah, we've seen that too. This repetition here is a sign for us that God has some central truths to make sure we are solid in our understanding and application of It's sad to me that some critics of of the scriptures would come to these uh, passages here, then they would argue that the repetition means that the accounts are just fables. And yet they are unable to see the spiritual points being made. See, what Mark wants us to remember, what Mark wants us to know as we move on, as we come here, he wants to make sure that we are rock solid in remembering that Jesus as Lord is your provider. 
Remember Jesus as Lord is your first here provider. He is our provider. Join me now as we just kind of walk through these sections here as we see these points play out together. In verse one here of chapter eight, we see Jesus providing. It's another miraculous and massive feast, isn't it? We're told in verse nine that this time there are 4,000 people gathered. And really, it's the same scene, isn't it? Jesus is somewhere teaching, a crowd has gathered, and we see the same unchanging, compassionate Jesus to their physical needs. He, has not, uh, he, he hasn't changed in the uh, preceding months in between these two events. They were so eager to hear the word of God that these, actually, listeners had been there for how many days? Three days. And they hadn't had any food to eat. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I would be hungry after three days, right? Ever been to a conference or something? Uh, A three or four day conference? Anybody ever been to something like that? So I've been to several pastor's conferences with about the same amount of of people. And I get hungry after about three or four hours of sitting, uh, listening to uh, preaching and sessions and breakouts and things. And now these y'all, they are captivated by Christ's teaching that they are there for even three days. And now there are no restaurants to dismiss them to. I can't call uh, the meetings to adjournment, but they're hungry. It's interesting, in the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples first recognized the problem. Here now, Jesus does. He calls his disciples and said, hey, I've got compassion on these guys, and they are hungry. They are hungry, and he's going to send them out. See, it's a similar scene to the 5,000, but there's some differences, not just in the number of people and Jesus uh, um, initiating the, the feeding this time, but also where is Jesus in this passage? Look at your scripture. Where, where is Jesus? Do we know? doesn't actually, we're, we're, we're kind of left to wonder. It doesn't begin like that, but if we take the context of where Jesus has come from, he's probably somewhere still in the region of the Decapolis, in a Gentile region. He's there over in the eastern uh, lands uh, uh, from the Sea of Galilee in these 10 cities that were Roman-occupied, and he is now uh, concluding his ministry among the Gentiles. This is why we say Jesus is Lord of all, right? Not only has he uh, miraculously fed a massive amount of Jews in the feeding of the 5,000, but he has now done the same in the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles. Jesus is demonstrating that he is distributing in abundance his food among the dogs that were, we saw last chapter, remember? Jesus is the provider. And how many loaves are left over here? There's some differences here. He gives them seven loaves, a few fish. That comes in a couple different stages. But this time, how many baskets full of food do they get? Seven, but I want, you, I want you to see something here because it's actually way more food than the previous time. Because even though it's the same word baskets in, uh, in, in our English uh, translations in the feeding of the 5,000, they were actually kind of small personal sized baskets. They're maybe bottle shaped and it was uh, 12 of those to feed the hungry disciples. These baskets, these are big enough to fit a person in it. 
I mean, that's a lot of leftovers, right? I mean, did you feed anybody on July 4th? Have a, you know, these like hamper-sized baskets that you could cart a person in? I mean, that's a lot of bread, y'all. That's a lot of leftover food. And the result here uh, is the same as before. They ate, look at verse eight. They ate and were satisfied. Beloved, when we eat of the Lord's goodness, we will always be satisfied. And why do we, why do we so easily forget this? Why do we so easily forget the goodness of our abundantly providing God? You know, we, we read verse four here with contempt towards the disciples, don't we? We think like, duh, like how is, how's this crowd gonna be fed? You know, they ask, like here we're in this desolate place where they were thinking like, this crowd is smaller, you have Jesus here. Like, did you already forget? You know, it's just, it's like a flip of the page for us. We're like, Jesus did it here, same problem here. What do you think the solution is, right? Ask Jesus, bada bing, bada boom, right? All these people are fed. And yet, as I said, many months had passed for them and we really are no different than the disciples. See, we find ourselves in places of need all the time in our life. We come to circumstances, our car breaks down and we're unsure of, okay, do I have the money to fix this? It's really not worth to fix and so maybe I need to get a new car but I don't have any savings up and God always comes through. We praise the Lord, we are amazed by it and then six months go by and then major changes at work are announced. They're restructuring something, they are shutting something down, our pay is changing, we're getting a new boss, we're moving or whatnot and... We don't know where to go, and God always comes through. And a few more months go by, and we start feeling bad, and the doctor gives an unfavorable diagnosis, and we're not sure of where to go, and what always happens, beloved? God always comes through. He always comes through. See, beloved, the the repetition here teaches us over and over again that Jesus is still compassionate, that Jesus is still satisfying, that he is always providing for his children and big needs do not scare him. He has yet to fail us. He has yet to not come through in a way that is good, in a way that is most glorifying to him. Beloved, don't forget this truth. It's not as if your situation will be the first in human history that, that Jesus fails. It is, it, he isn't like some old appliance that you're just waiting for like, well, any day now this thing's gonna quit working on me. Beloved, Jesus is far more reliable than any appliance. He is far more trustworthy, is he not? He is far more abundant and good and kind to we who are his children. Forget not that he is your provider. That he is your provider. And not only is he our provider, but remember Jesus as Lord is here secondly, your proof. Your proof your proof. See, Jesus feeds the disciples here. He uh, proclaims that he is the provider, and then he gets into his boat immediately, like we see him. 
He likes that Sea of Galilee. He likes to travel across it. He gets in with his disciples and he goes to the district of Dalmanutha. Now what Jesus has just done is really complete his circle through the Gentile regions by now crossing the Sea of Galilee back into this district of Dalmanutha, which is really uh, near Capernaum and Magdala there on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And so remember last week, if you know, if we, we kind of pictured in our minds that if Jesus started in New Braunfels, then he made this journey up through like Seguin and then Kyle and then kind of looped around to the Decapolis, which is, uh, you know, over there like Seguin area. And now he's just kind of come back. A massive walk, many months of ministry. And as he's been gone, now he's back in verse 11. He's now back in Israel, back in Jewish territory. And guess who's there waiting for him? The Pharisees, right? We've seen this happen over and over again. Jesus shows up, and there are some guys that have just been stewing for months, ready to confront Jesus. They've just been stewing. They've got a zinger this time for him, right? They have a zinger, and what do they want to see this time? What do they want to see? Look at it. What do they want? Verse 11, they're seeking from him a... A sign, a sign from heaven to test him. Now, this isn't just another, like, uh, you know, healing miracle. They've witnessed all those things. They want definitive proof that he is God. They've just heard all this stuff. He's been, you know, causing all this uh, stir uh, throughout his ministry, and they want now, they are demanding proof to prove who, that he is who he says he is. And all in, look at verse 12, all Jesus can really do is groan or sigh deeply in his spirit. This is a different kind of sigh than the one we saw in 734. The compassionate sigh as he is healing the deaf and mute man. This is the vexation of Christ as he engages these unbelieving hearts. This is, the, this is the groan of the judge on his bench who has heard the case and observed the cold-hearted unrepentance of these men and with a deep sigh delivers his just judgment. No sign for you. No sign for you. No sign for this generation. Why? Because, beloved, the sign was right in front of them. The proof was standing right before their confrontational eyes. His life, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' miracles was proof enough, and the Pharisees were too blind to see it. And in an act of judgment on their unbelief, he gets back in the boat and he leaves. He just leaves as an act of judgment. No sign, no ministry, no power, no presence of the Lord of all. And he leaves. And that, the blindness of the Pharisees is then contrasted with the dullness of the disciples. All these things happen. These people have been fed. Now there's just been this confrontation with the Pharisees and now they get back in the boat 
The disciples are just beginning to perceive the proof, and yet they're still growing, and they are still getting hung up on food, on physical needs, aren't they? They've witnessed all this, but they're still hungry. Can you see that? Like, look in verse 14. Like, get, the, get the scene in your mind here. They've just had this confrontation. Now they get back in the boat, and they have one thing on their minds in verse 14. They forgot to bring bread. They only had one loaf. I've just wondered, like, what happened to all those seven baskets full, right? Like, didn't somebody remember to say, hey, maybe we should take a few of these things? But I kind of get the picture, like, Jesus is just on the go. He's always doing ministry. There's, like, no time to pack, no time to, like, think, you know, we're, like, thinking through all the things, especially those of us who are really detail-oriented and, like, list keepers. We have packing lists. I'm going on a trip, and I need to make sure all these things. Yeah, not like when you're following Jesus, you know. And so they get back in the boat, they go, and their minds are on that. Jesus sees it, and look at his question here. He cautioned them, saying, he says, Watch out, beware of the leaven and the of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they're just like, Oh, that's cool, Jesus, but we're still hungry. We'll come back to your question. You know, they began discussing again with one another the fact that they had no bread. And I, I love this little scene. I love this interaction because Jesus is the master of taking advantage of the moment to make just a normal situation spiritual. This is an art. This is a gift, beloved. Learn to do this well like Christ and you will maximize your effectiveness in evangelism and discipleship of being able to see spiritual connections to just ordinary circumstances in life and of make, turning conversations there in a, just a very winsome way to point out a spiritual truth, to point people to Christ. And that's what Jesus is doing here. They're hungry. He throws out this big question. They're like, yeah, that's cool, but we're still hungry. We have no food, and they don't get the first connection. And so Jesus very graciously, patiently peppers them with eight questions. Did you see all that? As we were reading it, as we were going through it, it's like he, he just like is driving at the same point but in different ways. He's using repetition to teach a truth. He's saying, I'm the Lord, I will provide, I am the proof. Don't let even a smidgen of unbelief ruin everything. So you don't read these questions as if the, the barrage of questioning here is Jesus mad and upset at them. He's actually just very graciously, patiently, repetitiously making a point. He's saying, I know we just walked through these things and now in my discipleship of you, I'm gonna warn you about a couple things, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven of the Pharisees, I mean, I think we're all familiar with this. We've uh, studied them at length and looked into their life. It's the leaven of legalism, of fundamentalism, of value, valuing traditions over valuing Christ. They outward looked like they were religious, but inward they had a corrupt heart. And just even a little leaven leads to a fraudulent faith where everything on the outside looks great, but inside it's corrupt and far from God. And you get, you, most of you are bakers, you understand the concept of leaven. It's just like that little piece here, right? And you put it into some flour in the dough and you mix it all up and what's uh, all of a sudden little, just like balloons it. I was gonna try to do a demonstration here, but my wife told me it doesn't actually work that fast. 
So I would have had to do a whole bunch of baking, and me and baking don't get along all that well. But there are traces of legalism, of outwardness that can ruin the whole lump. On the other end of the spectrum is the leaven of the Herodians, the leaven of Herod, who were marked for their immorality, for living a loose and free life of trampling the grace of God that has been shown to humanity. The problem here is, is actually opposite. It's, it's actually claiming to have a transformed, a, a new heart, but outwardly there is no change in the person's life. They, their life mirrors that of a non-believer. And just a little bit of that thinking can corrupt the whole batch. Beloved, if we allow either of those pieces of leaven in our own life, it will not go well for us. We, like the disciples, are slow learners. We, we, we're slow learners, aren't we? They had Jesus right there and among them. We uh, ourselves, we as believers, have the Spirit living inside us, the Word of God accessible to us basically 24-7. And Jesus here comes and he asks these heart-penetrating questions meant to prick the conscience. See, accusations harden the heart, but questions soften the heart. Accusations harden the heart, but questions soften the heart. And Jesus knows what they need, that they need the help to see and understand all that is happening around them, just in the same way that we do, to see the spiritual significance of these events. And so he makes the most of a breadless situation. He makes the most of this uh, another boat ride while he has a captive audience to teach them what is going on to make the most of an opportunity. Let me ask these questions. Are there traces of pharisaical leaven in you? Were you cling too tightly to religious traditions? Were you work hard to keep up outward religious appearances, avoiding vulnerability at all costs? where you think too highly of your performance compared to the performance of others, where you're kind of mentally keeping score of what others do and don't do in regards to their spiritual life and what you do or don't do. Or are there traces of Herodian leaven in you? We are clinging too tightly to the old you, unwilling to let go of old habits and hangouts, where you work hard to keep up a kind of an edgy, messy version of your faith, where you're boasting of your own sin and messiness and trampling upon the grace of God, where you think too highly of your personal freedoms, condemning those with higher standards as weak, fundamentalist, legalist, goody-two-shoes, self-righteous people. But Jesus, with precision-like skill, he comes and asks questions of our own heart that cut the leaven out of our lives in his grace, in his compassion as we come to him. It's quite a boat ride, wasn't it? It's quite a night, quite, a, quite an adventure with Christ. Some, as a matter of fact, pretty, some pretty incredible things happen on boats with Jesus, don't they? 
calming storms, walking on water, here teaching these massively profound lessons. This boat ride, he is proving again and again who he is and that he is the source of our growth. That he knows the condition of our hearts. That he comes as the proof in his own life of who he says he is as Jesus as Lord. He does it again. He proves again who he is. He proves again that he's the source of our growth and they land in Bethsaida which is back on the northeast shore, and Jesus here heals a blind man. See, beloved, Mark wants us to know, the book of Mark wants us to have solid in our understanding, to remember that Jesus says, Lord, is your power. Is your power. See, we come to verse 22. Jesus has just gone through the boat, or on the boat with the disciples. He's just taught them these lessons. He's just asked, do you not yet understand? And he begins to teach them. And now as they land in Bethsaida, there's no crowd to greet them. Just some friends of a blind man, right? Sounds a lot like back in chapter two when Jesus is teaching in Capernaum and the four friends bring their uh, paralyzed friend to Jesus. And as we've seen repeated often, look at verse 22, they bring this blind man and how do they approach Jesus? They beg him. They beg Jesus to touch him. I don't think it's any accident that this is repeated over and over and over and over in the book of Mark as people come to Christ. See, we in our own thinking, I think sometimes are, we, we are, we're just too proud to think that we could come to Christ begging him to move on our behalf. And if you want to see the same type of transformative results that you see in a blind man being healed, and a deaf and a mute man being healed, and a little girl being raised from the dead, and the way to approach Christ, the precursor to that type of transformation, and that type of faith is begging the Lord to move on your behalf. And when we understand that Jesus is Lord of all, that he is the master, that he is the power and the source behind everything, and we are frail and weak and completely unable to affect those types of changes, what else could we do but come and implore the Lord? To implore the Lord to save that person to change an impossible situation. And though our culture sees begging and imploring as an act of really unspeakable weakness, we need to just throw off all of those cultural kind of connotations that come with uh, power and weakness and come before the Lord and beg him to move. Beg him. And don't stop. Don't stop until you see him move. Remember, the Lord is Lord of all, and he is our power. 
They come and they beg Jesus to touch him, like we've seen, the source of his power. And there's, there, there's, there's some differences here that stand out really about this miracle. There's a few differences. One, the first one is that he takes the man, look, he takes him and he leads him outside the village. It's very interesting, isn't it? Like, it's not just like right there, instantaneous among the crowd. No, he takes this man and moves him outside of the village of Bethsaida. Why would he do that? Well, in the same way that Jesus pronounced judgment on the unbelieving Pharisees just a few verses ago, he's now pronouncing judgment on this unbelieving city. Unbelieving city of Bethsaida. Hear Jesus' words in, uh, as Matthew records them in Matthew 11, 20 to 22. It says there that then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus had done a lot of ministry in Bethsaida up to this point, hasn't he? And hear this, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those cities we saw in the end of chapter 7, those Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. See, Jesus takes this man outside the city as an act of judgment because he finds faith in this man and in his friends even, and he takes him out, and even to the point back in verse 26, he says, don't even go back into that city. And second, second difference that we see here is Jesus heals in two different stages. Did you see that here? We've seen kind of like multiple stages in the same way that he feeds the 4,000 in two stages. First, he takes all the loaves of bread, he blesses it, and it gets distributed. And then they find a few fish, and he blesses that, and it gets distributed. Here, the healing of the blind man happens also in two stages. It's not as instantaneous as some of his other miracles. At first, the man's, uh, his perception, his sight becomes blurry. He'd likely, you know, been born able to see, and then through some disease, through some sickness in his eyes, he, he, Jesus, he spits on his eyes and laid his hands on him. I don't see this as like some type of gross, vulgar thing. He's being very compassionate. And he asks him, do you see anything? And he says, well, they look like trees. His, his, his uh, vision, his understanding is obscured. Maybe like an opaque mirror. And then he lays his hands on him again in verse 25, and the healing is complete. His sight is restored. Look at it. It says he saw everything clearly. Beloved, our growth in Christ, our sanctification is not always instant, but is progressive. We need the same lessons repeated over and over and over until we get it, right? We need several questions asked in a variety of ways until we connect the dots from biblical truth to everyday living. This is why we have repetition even built into the vehicles of our discipleship within the church. Why you hear a message on Sunday and then hopefully are doing your own personal study in the same passage and surrounding context and then in small group as you are going even further in your understanding and more specific in your application because we just don't always get it instantly, do we? We need the repetition and behind it all, Jesus is the power enabling us to see and understand. 
And just because some growth takes time doesn't mean that it's insufficient or lacking because slow growth is often lasting growth, isn't it? Sometimes our faith is like a, a brisket. Brisket is no good if it's cooked in a microwave, is it? I don't know, I've never done that, but I can imagine. But when it is slow cooked over low heat, over that flavor-filled you know, smoke, with the master uh, smoker continually basting it with the juices, then it turns into a delicious lunch, doesn't it? And 50% of the church said, we're going to barbecue this afternoon. (laughs) Beloved, remember this. Remember this, Jesus is the power behind your progress. You come to faith at his bidding, have you? Have you come to him? Have you begged him to save you? Have you come in repentance and faith? Are you coming asking or waiting and saying, oh God, I will, but you need to show me a sign. Be warned of the leaven of the Pharisees. Have you come in repentance and faith? And he will receive you with compassion. He will abundantly pardon if you come to him humbly. Beloved, you also grow in him and faith at his bidding. Sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's slow, but always exactly as he plans. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents, your friends, they grow in the same way as well. They grow in Christ at the exact speed that he deems fit. As you plead with him in prayer, as you bring your friends to the Lord, he will do his work and you can count on that. You can count on that. Remember, redemption, Jesus is Lord of all, is he not? Jesus is Lord of all. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 12 and 13, he exhorts us to remember this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember who you once were. But now... But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is what we remember. We remember where we came from. We remember what we once were, but what Christ has done on our behalf. See, on a weekend where our nation remembers our national freedoms and the cost it took to obtain and to keep that freedom, let us not forget the eternal cost, that, the eternal cost, rather, that Christ as Lord paid with his life to obtain and secure once for all our freedom from sin and salvation for eternity. Let us remember afresh this morning as the Spirit brings to mind the work of Christ on the cross for you Let his spirit remind you of his provision in your life, of his proof, of his goodness in your life, of his power to work in your life. Remember this, Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses' response is this, and Moses quickly, I love that word, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. How else could we respond to seeing Jesus as Lord, as our provider, as a proof, as a power, but to quickly bow and worship? Let us do that even now. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come up, and as they are, let's just pause and pray to prepare our hearts with the, for the worship to respond to the truth that we have just heard in God's word. Bow your heads and let's pray this together. Let us now pray.